You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. This is another edition of The Swamp Explained, where we get together with our good friend Rob Cortell, who is a 45-year fly on the wall in Washington, D.C. And Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns like George H.W. Bush and Gerald Ford. The uh, He's worked for government agencies like the EPA and has been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission. He's also been a candidate for Congress and Senate, and he spent years working in the private technology sector working with startup companies. Now, given his experience and his iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us great insight into the swamp and what makes up our nation's capital. And, uh, you know, it's been two weeks since Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. It's been six days since the taxes uh, kerfuffle. It's been four, five days since the uh, white supremacy debate <laughs> stuff. None of we'll talk about some of that, but I mean, it's like lower on the list now. It's every day, Rob, is a new news yeah. cycle by the end of the day. Well, which of those is the October surprise? I don't. And the, the, yeah, Hollywood access tape and then was the October 7th, and then the, uh, the WikiLeaks stuff was October yeah. 8th. So, yeah. you know, Bush at the DUI was four or five days before the election. Like, we, yeah, we're not done. There's 31, 30 days till the election. We're nowhere near done. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. But um, but we've had a lot of uh, surprises in the last two weeks, uh, including the president. Of course, now that's not a surprise. This right? is the least surprising outcome. I mean, they've been fairly reckless just to kind of document some of the recklessness that's been taking place. You know, the the uh, they had the big Rose Garden event, no masks. Uh, where Coney Barrett was announced, and that allegedly is right, where right. this all kind of entered the White House inner circles. Then they go to the debate, and the um, the family, even though it was in the rules, the family all declined to wear masks. You have on back coming back from air uh, on Wednesday from a rally in Minnesota. Hope Hicks starts feeling symptomatic, and they quarantine her. She tests positive the next morning. Trump completely ignores that he's been exposed and goes to a fundraiser with 50 people where some of these donations are $250,000. Those 50 right. people are freaking out. You know, so right. it's it's just a a continual like Donald Trump is 74, overweight, doesn't take good care of himself, like his you know, he takes an aspirin every day. Like there's a sense of invincibility and it was never going to happen to us that has caught up with them. You know, it, it's interesting. I read an article somewhere, I can't remember in the last two or three days, that when he was a kid, they went to a church uh, that was run by Norman Vincent Peale. Hmm. Yeah. For, uh, and, you know, he was, um, he was, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's things will, are always better than they seem. And, and you can make, you can make things better by starting to believe they're better. I mean, I, I'm not giving him his due purpose, but he, you know, he was um, essentially an optimist. Right. And we tend to, I, I'd never read that or heard that anywhere. And we tend to uh, assume everything about Trump is Machiavellian or ignorant or something else. But, you know, it may well be, there may be a grain of truth in in that in his uh, upbringing. And, you know, some some religions seem a little darker and 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 uh, than others. And But Peel was uh, uh, a very optimistic 
uh, glasses half full kind of guy. And of course, I remember George H.W. Bush, you know, from the beginning, first time I ever met him, it was, you know, I believe some people believe the glass is half empty. I believe the glass is half full. And um, of course, you would hope that that would be tempered by some rational activities <laughs> outside of it. But, but you know, you get a little hint of that in uh, his conversations. Um, well, uh, when you the, control we're, we're, when you control fate through will of the force of your will yeah, in his mindset, right. He, right. nothing can yeah. touch you. Yeah, but uh, but I, I doubt anyone surprised, and it is irresponsible. And and you know, it's not just personally irresponsible, but it uh, it it uh, has an impact, of course, on the whole governance of the United States, and and everybody's in a tizzy, um, and. Um, and we really to this, you know, obviously we all hope he gets well and he has a mild case and, and Melania too. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you have no idea where this disease will go. You know, uh, Boris Johnson had a fairly early, easy week and did some work first week and, and then he just collapsed in a three hour period and they ended up, uh, you know, in the hospital, you know, sort of a near death experience. And so let's just hope that doesn't happen with, uh, the president. So yeah, anyway. it's the but, cytokine storm comes in, and your your immune system starts attacking that, right. and and it starts to build and build overreaction, and, right. and overreaction, and that overreaction right. from your immune system can start to attack your heart, your lungs. Then you have the right. oxygen depletion, and the oxygen depletes from your other organs. So that's why there's ninety ninety five percent comorbidities. You know, if, right. but if, unlike other Americans, he gets um, Rendesivir, and he gets a cocktail made by by uh, one of the major pharmaceutical companies of um, antibodies. Three hundred uh, people have had that test, right? Or that, right. that cocktail, that, that cocktail, yeah. right? And uh, Regeneron, which, by the way, is a terrific, terrific company. They, um, uh, the guy who's been on the news, they're one of their two founders. Um, we know not personally incredibly well, but we do know well enough uh, from he used to be well, his company now sponsors what used to be the Westinghouse Science Fair. And uh, my wife serves on the board of the company that um, runs that or did serve on it. And um, they're just a great sponsor. And, you know, the science fair, they give out like a quarter million dollars to the number one high school student winner. And then they give out. 150 and then several 100s and then a bunch of 50s. I mean, it's a, an incredibly generous program. But uh, anyway, so Regeneron, which is is a very interesting pharma company. And uh, so it's not like he's at the hands of, you know. Yeah, I guess uh, it irritates hydro, me. Hydrochloroquine. Yeah, which, <laughs> boy, is that debate settled because that's not on his list of treatments. <laughs> yeah. Um, when when push came to shove, he wasn't he's he wasn't prescribed it and is not taking it. Um, I guess. Yeah. I but guess of course, it, this, there's a cascade of things you know that people are talking about yeah. here. Well, let me let me say this. I you know there, it's frustrating going back to what we talked about last episode that Donald Trump is able to have a test and has access to as many tests and, and his entire team has. And it's very it's very hard. And I've not talked about it on the show, but like I I was told by an IU telehealth nurse in April that I had that I likely had it based on my symptoms. Hmm. And I can tell you that I wasn't able at the time to get a test. It was nine hundred dollars. And, you know, I, I would have loved to have the ability to have testing every day, but 
they failed at it. And, you know, he has access to it, and they haven't been doing that. Why did it take so long for them to really catch up with this stuff? Well, and, the more irresponsible part is that they knew Hope Hicks had it, and yeah. yet he went ahead and did the other fundraisers. Which is, and, which is what really chaps people's behinds, because it's the lack yeah. of sympathy, it's the lack of responsibility, it's the lack of care and concern for other people. And so when this hits... There's not I heard one guy in CNN who was a voter in Wisconsin say, I don't want him to die, but I heard sure hope he learns a lesson, you know. Like, yeah. And they're going to still vote for him. <laughs> right. No, totally. I don't you know, if if this changes the election one jot, it will be to help him. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, obviously they're going to probably have to miss the next presidential debate. I guess the vice presidential debate is next Wednesday, mm-hmm. uh, this coming Wednesday. And so that'll be quite something to see. And both of them have tested negative. But, um, but you know, this is it's a great example of the swamp in motion, though, all around this. You know, there are discussions about, well, what if he gets sick uh, and can't, uh, you know, what if he goes into, you know, much sicker? And how does that translate into power? And then uh, if he, um, if he, uh, um, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then, of course, uh, if he had to drop out, you know, they're already talking about what are the rules of the Republican Party and the, the states. And so it is a cascade of big questions. And, of course, all of them are focused on him. <laughs> so, as you know, he likes to dominate the media. So there you go. But so in the, in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, we'll, we'll jump into the 25th Amendment because people are probably wondering yeah. what happens next. And so right. after the Kennedy assassination, Indiana Senator Birch Bayh spearheaded one of the three amendments that he championed. The third did not make it, which was the uh, uh, some, something to do with women's equality. You may remember the name of it. but ERA? The ERA, yes. Great, yeah. great yeah. show on Phyllis Schlafly that, uh, surrounding that. But um, essentially what happens is the, this has happened three times. Reagan, in uh, his administration, had a cancer surgery and was under anesthesia, and he signs a letter to the Senate pro tem and the House um, Speaker saying the vice president's in charge, and then he takes that power back with a second letter. Except Al Haig. Al Haig said he was in charge. Well, that was was the shooting, and so they didn't invoke it then. And you may fill people in because 81 keeps coming up, and I'm, I was born in 83. <laughs> what happened when President Reagan was shot and under anesthesia in 81 and Al Haig? Can you explain that? Well, you know, I, I don't I, – I think it's probably less dark than everybody. Haig was a, a very um, – he was a tough military guy, very authoritarian. I, he may have been uh, the supreme allied commander or something, uh, or certainly NATO, but um, – and Secretary of State and this and that, and he was Chief of Staff. And um, uh, and when Reagan was rushed to the hospital, of course, everybody's asking questions about what's going on. And he stands up in front of the camera and says, I am in charge here. And he, what he might have meant was, I'm in charge of the White House staff, um, but he was not in charge there. And George Bush had a, a greater sense of propriety and he never said I was in charge about anything. Mm-hmm. And, he he um, he kind of went about the business until um, Reagan went under surgery and he signed the letter and you know the the power was shifted uh, in theory anyway to George H W Bush who would I'm sure the nuclear football uh, was shifted over to at the same time and um, and as soon as Reagan came out 
you know, that was well, uh, shifted back. And, and, and Bush never said he never said I was in charge at all. Uh, you know, he was. Wasn't he, he just like felt, somewhere he on was a proper. Wasn't he somewhere on a vacation or something? He was he was not readily available or not in D.C. And that's why Haig. He may have been. Uh, he may have been at Kenny Bunkport. Yeah, uh, and that's well. Who's in charge right now? And I'm yeah, in charge. yeah. So I don't think Haig was quite as nefarious as he's been given credit for, or or um, criticized for. But it was a powerful moment, and it, it forever tarred his image. You know, and and I'm sure Reagan didn't much like it either. You know, when he came out of everything. So, yeah. but you know, that was a very good case of the 25th amendment working. And I know it seems to me it's been used several times since, um, I think, uh, uh, I can't remember whether it was, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh Bush 41 may have had some medical operation. I can't remember so, now, so, but so it's been used since Bush had two colonoscopies and transferred it. That's right. And That's so right. now W had him. Yeah. here's the thing. So the, the, now Reagan, the Bushes, Clinton, Obama, you know, if they're under anesthesia, they're in this situation, they're probably drawing up the letter. Let's be prepared. Let's go through all these eventualities. I don't think there's anybody that expects Donald Trump to sign that letter or understand what that letter means. And, you know, is and and Pence, is he going to be willing, let's say the president like Boris Johnson is, you know, on a ventilator and unable to perform his duties for a week or two? Is Mike Pence going to make a move with the rest of the cabinet? Because if the president doesn't, the cabinet and the vice president can sign the letter to the to the Congress. Is Mike Pence, you know, all of a sudden Trump comes back and then he feels the fury of usurping his power. You know, Donald Trump is not the type of person who is willing to uh, clearly, after talking about deleveraging your, your belief in your ballot, <laughs> he's not yeah, the type of guy yeah. just to willingly hand over power. So... I wonder how that plays out. Have you thought about, you know, Pence? Does he have the guts? What happens? Uh, well, if, there are a couple different can't. things here. You know, there's there's the there's the part where if the president um, willingly transfers it, um, and then there's the part where he unwillingly transfers it, and then uh, either because he is incapacitated sufficiently that he can't make the decision, or if the cabinet chooses to decide um, that he is. Uh, unable to execute the office. So, so there are three parts to the amendment. Um, you know, one is, um, is sort of the succession. Um, so it, the, if the president, um, um, if, if the cabinet, basically um, the vice president and eight, eight of the secretaries put it in writing, the president is unable to execute the office and send that to the speaker of the house or the pre- and the president pro tem, which is, uh, you know, on the Senate side, and the, the president, the vice president, immediately takes on the president's powers, uh, but he becomes acting president. So the elected president hasn't lost office yet or anything like that. But um, but he can then come back and say, the president can say, I'm able to take it over. Um, uh, and he sends a letter to the pre- to the House and to the Senate saying that I'm not unable to perform my duties. And once that is, then... Um, they get their power back in four days, unless that you know the vice president and the eight cabinet officers say again that he is um, hmm. not able. So, so there's a time. So, there's a time. And if that happens, then the Senate has to jump in to deal to settle the dispute. So right, you know, a number of contingencies. It's a very, it's sort of a complicated amendment, um, and it would be hard to imagine. But you know, think about there was uh, this whole conversation 
early on in the Trump um, administration about so many of the cabinet secretaries and others were just appalled and mm. shocked. And, and was there going to be a palace coup? And of course there was not, but had there been, you know, they would have used this as a vehicle for the coup. We we you we talked about the twenty fifth amendment and his mental fitness at the time. I yeah. wonder if like a Chad Wolf who's an acting secretary would they count? Would that because well he, no he would not because I mean they, I'm sure I I can't imagine that he would be considered. Um, uh, and and if it's eight, that means it must be two thirds plus one of the. Uh, cabinet yeah this secession stuff has come up a lot because you know in the forthcoming episode that we're going to do talking about the bart gelman in the atlantic article Mm -hmm. you know one of the the scenarios is can the the republicans throw this into chaos to the point that they go past the deadline that's set in a constitutional amendments for the electors and then all of a sudden you end up with a scenario in January where Nancy Pelosi's the president. Um, well, you could. Yeah, it's really crazy. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, back, you know, in, in, in sort of uh, the, the thematically the swamp, there's a whole lot of activity going around all of these threads of governance. So, so I think most people probably don't know that if it does go to the House, that if the electors can't agree, you know, you have an election. Each state has a number of electors based on population and and um, a number of congressional seats and Senate seats and all that and blah, blah, blah. Um, and if they cannot agree, uh, on, and that is up in December, uh, mid to late December is when they meet. So, um, for instance, if Pennsylvania is really tight, they cast out, well, the ballots are all fake, so we need the Trump electors, but the Biden electors have been seated because – they properly won according to the certified election. But now you've got 40 people instead of 20 that are right. electors from Pennsylvania. And then all of a sudden, now what do you do? Well, and then the, I probably, and I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if the other electors get to decide who gets seated, not unlike the Congress can do something similar, but, um, but, you know, we will be having a lot of these fights in courts and, and uh, and of course, that's why the administration wants to have the ninth justice, um, Amy uh, Corny Barrett, uh, in place because they're just assuming that she will vote with them. I don't think that's a natural assumption. Yeah. Um, there have been there have been other instances where I think uh, the conservative, uh, the true conservative point of view, would not be what they're assuming. But uh, but in any case, let's say the electors, for all the various reasons, can't reach an agreement. Then it goes to the House. And, you know, we everybody sort of assume. Well, by the way, on the electors, um, people need to be aware that more states uh, are now splitting the electors in any case based on proportionate um, uh, vote. So there are a couple states that um, if, you know, the president gets three of the congressional seats, uh, and the, and Biden gets two, they're going to split the electors uh, uh, proportionately to reflect that. That's not in the Constitution, but the states are all able under the Constitution to pick electors their own way. And that's that's where this is. This is going to go to state courts first, you know, in the instance you talked about with um, Pennsylvania. But but again, when it, if it goes to the House, everybody may assume that it's proportionate by you know, per per congressman, everyone gets a vote, but that is not the way it works. It is every state gets one vote. And so you have to take the whole of the delegation. And if the delegation is, you know, more Democrats and Republicans, they're obviously good. Their one vote's going to go for Biden and vice versa. And right now, 
despite the fact that Republicans are in minority, they control more state delegations. So in this category of the swamp and everybody, all these creatures doing their own thing, there's a whole separate thread of people out there who are working very hard, particularly on the Democratic side, to make sure they can tip over enough um, state delegations that they would win in the event of uh, it going to the House. So this is very complicated. And this is a great example of, you know, the swamp at work in ways that most people never see. The gap between what we think government is and how it operates, because we watch television, we read, you know, blogs, we read, really people just kind of glean from their social media what's going on. That is so far disconnected from how things work. The legality, the, the, the legal struggles that we've just covered in the first 20 minutes here, each one of the, like the Supreme Court, for instance, I think people glean off of social media that, of course, we've got six justices and they've got three. So these six justices are going to go our way. But in the legal system, in law, like we said last time, there's no guarantee that, well, Coney Barrett will recuse herself. Justice Thomas will be with you. But Kavanaugh, Alito and Roberts vote against Trump. You know, it's I think people think that they're guaranteed votes and they're rooting for this Supreme Court nomination like it's a team sport. And it's not in the law. You know, the the you look at Texas, for instance, and really the voting stuff illustrates a lot of this. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Texas, you've got all these lawsuits by the Republican Party trying to use mm-hmm. the law and existing case law to erode the ability for people to vote because they think that if more people vote, it helps the Democrats. You know, so you've got Texas Governor Abbott, Republican, limiting the amount of ballot drop-offs to one per county. Well, there is like, right. you know. There's and, counties that are huge. Yeah, Travis County with Austin, all yeah. of Austin. Yeah. I mean, it's it's insane. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. well, and I, I do think that's actually deliberate. I think that's... Uh, you know, it, it, it does remind me of, uh, I mean, it's a different topic. Sometime we can talk about it, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. I, I personally do not believe we are an inherently racist society, but I do think there are many things which play out racially that right. are, are in the law, which are, we're not aware of, some of which are deliberate and some of which are not. I mean, for example, the real estate law in New York, you know, that basically taxed black properties higher than black neighborhoods more heavily than white neighborhoods. That's, that's clearly a bias. But, but what they're doing in Texas, in my opinion, is absolutely intended to reduce the vote uh, of Latinos and uh, other minorities in Texas. And Who has and a I car to-, to drive to the box and who doesn't yeah. have a car to drive to the box? Totally, totally. It's, it's a kind of poll tax in its own way. Yeah. Which has been outlawed, as we well know, in the Constitution. But so, but so there's so many things in this cascade. So, you know, there, uh, there's what happens, what happens if Trump drops out, you know, in terms of the government itself, then there's a whole election. So, you know, um, what happens there? Well, the Republican National Committee, it doesn't just pass to Pence. The Republican National Committee would have to meet, um, and that is proportionate, and vote on who um, would represent the, who would be the nominee of the party. And then, of course, they got to try to figure out somehow to get it on the ballot in all these states. And each state has its own ballot procedures and printing. And, and you know, we started absentee voting how many weeks ago now? It's uh, been 10 days, yeah. a week and a half, two weeks ago. So 
Um, let me um, let me read something from the Atlantic. Rules exist for what could come next, but they won't prevent total chaos. This is by a guy who right. wrote uh, the author of this article, wrote a book on the 25th Amendment and wrote this mm-hmm. article on what happens next. So he writes, there is no real possibility of delaying the election that would require legislation um, from the House, the Senate, and the president agreeing right. quickly on new dates. So that's not that's out. It's too late to reprint the ballots. Not only have millions of people voted already, but the process of printing and distributing is simply too time consuming. And I'd also add too expensive. The law recognizes that at a certain point, the ballots say what they say, even if they're no longer accurate. Um, it would be crucial for <laughs> the party replacing a candidate to broadcast its choice to the public with speed and clarity. And so... <laughs> Uh, as perhaps more important, the party would need to coordinate its electoral college designees, the people who cast the actual electoral vote. So they'd have to whip all those delegates to vote for Pence, let's say, if he's... So it goes to the parties. So the DNC or the RNC calls. Right. They select the candidate. They say, they publicly declare this is our candidate. Then you basically have to hope that people vote for that candidate and then the electoral college votes for that so the, all the people want to abolish the electoral college. This is another example of that check and balance on shenanigans, uh, and that's right. You know that people need to be aware of. Let's say Trump tries to steal the election, or the Trump something happens and and Pence is the ballot, and it's it's another layer of protection for the public. You get rid of the electoral well, this, college. It's a great example of why direct election is problematic. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I agree. The um, but so so you got, so you get the party thing, and then of course there are all the other effects. You know the cascade, which we sort of talked about uh, in other things here. You know, two of the senators who are key on the House, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is going to review the Supreme Court nominee and recommend her to the full Senate, have COVID, yeah. and they were going to start hearings in the next two weeks. Well, they can't do that uh, if they're under the weather. Uh, you know, maybe they'll be fine. Maybe be a mild case. They could certainly participate in that sense. But of course, uh, as someone pointed out in, I think, the Washington Post this morning, McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, doesn't have to have a committee recommendation. He can just send it to the floor if he wants. Yep. Uh, and that he would be said, procedurally bad, but he, he said today it. they're going to do a Zoom hearing. <laughs> which, yeah, yeah. You know, and then Chuck Schumer tweeted out, it, it is irresponsible and dangerous to move forward with a hearing, and there is absolutely no good reason to do so. So you've now got three senators, two of which are on the Judicial Committee, based on your reckless behavior that are every every senator that falls is another two to three week delay on this. And it's their fault, but they're going to blame the Democrats and everybody will go along with it. And they've now put Amy Coney Barrett's nomination at risk. Let's say Biden wins and they try to approve her during a lame duck session. That makes the legitimacy crisis even worse. Yeah, I I, but I think if we were to predict um, assume I, uh, I think if, uh, well, let me make one prediction. If something did happen to Trump and he couldn't be on the ballot or he, you know, he, 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 he were to die or he be incapacitated in some way, I'm not sure that there wouldn't be a fight over the next, over the, the nominee, because, you know, there are some very, um, aggressive, uh, senators out there, including Rubio and, um, and, uh, our, what's his name from Texas? Um, uh, Ted Cruz, you know, Cruz and, um, a couple others, but those two would be fighting it out. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, uh, so, you know, 
question is going to be who's the most Trumpian. That would probably be Cruz, I guess. But yeah, (laughs) but but there would be I think it'd be a fight. But but in any case, assuming it isn't, I think the reality is the election is going to go ahead. Um, I think that uh, Barrett will be approved. Um, I do think the uh, I, I, I don't think the hypocrisy argument has had much sway because Frankly, most Americans think all politicians are hypocrites. So exhibiting a little more hypocritical behavior doesn't make them any more hypocritical than they were before. Right. So um, and the reality, I sort of uh, part of me thinks the Democrats should be playing uh, the card that, um, you know, it was perfectly legal on Constitution for uh, uh, Obama to nominate uh, Merrick Garland. And it's perfectly legal, unfortunately, for for Trump to nominate um, uh, Barrett uh, because they're president. And Obama was president. What the Demo- what the Republicans did was bad and evil, and and the Democrats can't do anything other than uh, ask questions. So I, there's some aspect of me which thinks they should just take the position that what the Republicans did under Obama was wrong, and it's not so wrong for Trump because he does have that right. And, and no one could possibly expect Trump to step back, even if he loses and Barrett is not confirmed by that point. I fully don't expect he would ever step back. He was totally pushing. right in the debate when he goes, you guys would do it too. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, completely. Um, so anyway, it's all, it's uh, it's kind of crazy. What can, what can happen next, right? Oh, I mean, and of course, the taxes just sort of went over people's heads. Oh, yeah. Jonah Goldberg tweeted out. He goes, next weekend, you will look back on this weekend with fond memories of how peaceful and and calm it was or something along. That's right. That's right. Uh, And again, I don't think the tax thing bothers anybody. Um, Really? You know, I think I think um, I think that Trump should have done a better job of talking about it. I think one of his better lines uh, that got eaten up there was you wrote the laws, Joe. Um, (laughs) And uh, that happens to be true. That he was certainly one who voted for them. And um, and anyone in, and and frankly, what he should have I think what he should have said was, if you were a business guy and ever run a business, Joe, on, you know, you would know that sometimes you have losses and sometimes you have earnings, and the two get set uh, offset against each other. And 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 uh, but anyway, he didn't. And he's not one for great explanations. But I think it didn't change one vote anywhere and yeah the taxes thing i think so the new york times article that was the quote-unquote bombshell article basically said at one point that he was the greatest tax deductor in american history or like in one year he had written off more than any other american which ever ever (laughs) which you know there's there's part of me goes Nice. And then of course, the other, the other side, yeah, right. The other side goes, you know, when you continually advocate and excuse a person working in the gray area, eventually that that isn't a good look because it, it just looks like you're allowing criminality. And, and there's nothing so far that anybody's claimed is criminal, but it does show a per it does it did give me another dimension to Trump in that the amount of debt that he has, the amount of personal guarantees that are coming due, the amount of people that he owes that are unnamed it, it almost gave a sense of okay now all these stories are sort of fitting together that that trump has to maintain the office because if he leaves the office he's going to have all these investigations he's going to have all these hundred million dollar back tax payments he's you know he's using the white house travel office essentially as guaranteed room nights 
his in the tax returns you see the revenue to the hotels and golf courses every year he's president dropped dramatically because the brand has been damaged and so for him it's almost it's less about some grand vision of what he wants to do for America in a second term but more political and financial preservation in yeah. winning the office and I yeah. don't think that that's necessarily a winning message for people well I I um I, I think your analysis is correct that he he feels he would fundamentally be safer um, in the presidency. And I suspect this has cost him an awful lot of money. Um, you know, it's a sort of a Potemkin's village of um, uh, financial genius. But um, he could have gone for a long time, you know, never having moved to Washington with that and and uh, played with an awful lot of money and never been the target of any um investigation it, it sort any of, serious investigation yeah sorry to cut you off but it sort of validates the the rumor that he just did this in 2015 2016 the the, the apprentice was ending it was he had made 606 million dollars on it he mm -hmm. needed to gin up he had just bought all these properties and he wanted to gin up the brand a little bit create a little yeah. national presence but he never thought he'd, right. he'd win you know yeah, and, and never <laughs> thought it would undermine the brand but it's the worst but, uh, you know i think he where he's gonna but where he where he has created a brand and um, I, I heard uh, I, I was on a, uh, um, a Doug uh, uh, is it Doug uh, uh, Brinkley, you know who's the famous presidential historian, yeah. um, and went and he I, I'm on the humanities board at Rice University, where I went as an undergrad, and Brinkley is a professor there, and he was talking uh, about this. And he, you know, he he pointed out that if he loses, he he may be chased to the ends of the earth with these lawsuits and, and, and uh, tax uh, suits and everything else. And, and kind of the question that was raised was, is that a good thing? And, and he said, he reminded everyone that of course, after Nixon resigned and there, there were, there were cries for his further uh, incarceration and chopping him into teeny little bits and everything else um, Ford after I think two or three days decided to pardon him. Yeah. And, and he knew at the time uh, uh, that uh, it would have huge political implications for him. He, he Ford, uh, but he, as he said, it was time to heal the wounds and, of the nation. And I, I think one big question would be if Biden were to win. And again, I am not predicting that uh, uh, everybody will get my last prediction the week before the, uh, it would do a show right before the okay. election. <laughs> but um, uh I think he will be faced with exactly the same issue. And it's, you know, people like the House members who chased him through the impeachment, they're still uh, desperate for their pound of flesh. And, and, you know, maybe they should get it, but I do not think that will help uh, heal the country in any way. I don't expect the country to be healed, but I, I think Biden will be trying to reach out to the 45 or 7 percent of the voters who voted for Trump, because if he doesn't, it's not going to tamp things down. Well, you if know, Joe Biden is reportedly not running for a second term and is already a lame duck president and he's likely not to get much done politically, you know, if if it is true that not prosecuting Donald Trump and I tend to think that yes, giving him blanket immunity as Ford did to Nixon is probably the right move historically, but in the moment, not good politically because yeah. Biden's already going to be weak president. He's going to be attacked by the left, you know, sort of, sort of uh, like 
Carter was, I believe, you know, where it's just, mm-hmm. he's, he's not, he's, he may be the sacrificial lamb <laughs> in a lot of respects. I mean, so I could see him doing it on those grounds. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, well, I think he wouldn't want the news not to be dominated by Donald Trump for the yeah. next four years. And, and that's exactly what would happen. And I think uh, the other thing that uh, Brinkley predicted that if he lost, he would, um, particularly if something like that happened, he would fade away into history as the worst president, you know, in yeah. modern times. And um, uh, I do not think so. I think that there, I think that he will uh, lead a political party and uh, a new party. And I would not be surprised if, um, uh, if Donald Jr., or Ivanka um, was on the ballot in 2024 mm-hmm. for president. Um, so I think we have not seen the last of Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, I don't think Don Donald Jr. is quite as smart as his dad. <laughs> well, you remember the, the famous, uh, you know, somebody was comparing and contrasting fatherhood where Biden's, you know, tearing up about his sons all the time and then, Trump, when he walks into the delivery room, uh, his mom goes, oh, it's it's a boy. I, and I want to name him Donald Jr. And his response was, what if he's a loser? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. That's exactly right. And the Daily did. Well, a great, and he sort of was. He was. He was yeah. you know, and has been. You know, yeah. it's very he would never have made anything on his own. So, he, you know, he, he liked to hunt and fish and all that. And he probably would have been happier had he been able to do it. But, the Daily uh, Podcast did a great but, breakdown on Don Jr. But, yeah, I think you're right. The, the, the Trumpism. It will be around for a generation. It's not going back yeah. into yeah. the bottle. I think there, there's, you know, will Trump run again if he loses? Probably, but I don't think that he'd even make it through the primary. I think if he loses, people will be the funny. No, I think he's. I think if he loses, he's the Republican Party per se is is done with him. Yeah, the fundamental question yeah. is, can you handle four more years of this? And I think if he goes yeah. and you break the fever, everybody's going to go. I never want to go back to that. I'll take Ted Cruz. Like, you look at this and you go, oh, I miss George Bush. Even Ted Cruz would have been better. Can you imagine thinking that four or five years ago? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's uh, – contemplating four more years is pretty awful. I, I, but, you know, as I think we touched on last time, I do think, I do think that um, uh, – and, and Brinkley did this masterful job, and, and his books are wonderful uh, about the presidency. He wrote a great one about Cronkite. He wrote a terrific one about going to the moon. Um, but he he, um, uh, he went through the sort of the history of presidencies and and the rise and fall of populism and all this in a you know hour and a half conversation with all of us. And um, uh, you know this this populism is is something that is not just going to go away. I mean, the, the notion, somehow the government has gotten to a size that it's not solving a bunch of problems. And so, you know, Obama, Obama sort of promised to break some China uh, and, but didn't break a lot and sort of was sucked into the swamp and you know, the democratic side of the left, you know, left to center side of the swamp and the institutions that have been here forever. And, you know, I've, I've spoken before about the, um, uh, George Bush was being accused of being a one-worlder because he was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, you know, whatever one-worlder happens to be. Um, but he, um, I, I do think that there are just many institutions that are, were and have been ripe for change. 
And uh, the one that, of course, came that caused the biggest stir initially was Trump's answers on NATO. And well, NATO has existed virtually unchanged for since the end of the last world war. So that's a long time. Uh, and it, it was ripe to be broken. And I think the relationship with China and, and we, all of us have known how bad it is underneath and, and um, that they seem to have the tactical advantage and breaking that is probably fine. That's a good thing. And, yeah. you know, you can go down this list of organizations, institutions, and, and, and Trump is certainly not the first guy to use executive power, overuse it. Um, Obama, was rebuffed at by the courts at, at the end of his term on the coal regs. He, you know, he basically issued the uh, coal regs by fiat, and uh, the court in the end said that was a, an abuse of executive power. And we we uh, the left the left of center folks tend to forget that, and uh, and Trump has carried it enough to an extreme that I do think there will be uh, after the election no matter who wins, there'll be a movement to restrict or let's just say bring the powers of the Congress back to where they should be and the powers of the of the president back to where they should be. And they were supposed to be in more balance. Now, whether that makes sense in a world like ours is an entirely different question. It's not clear to me that you want a president so hamstrung that he can't react to threats, you know, immediately. And, uh, but, um, and I don't think people are seriously talking about that, but they need more reporting functions and all that. So, so I think what at the end of this, if Biden were to win, he would have a great opportunity to reset the clock on a whole bunch of institutions and things that we take for granted. Um, you know, the, our international relations um, have been ripe for resetting. Uh, and uh, they've not really ever had a kind of an overhaul since uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall under Bush, Bush one. Um, and so he's going to be handed all this. <clears throat> we see it as damage, but he's going to be handed basically an open field with a bunch of China on it um, to run Which... if, if he became president. And now he's never been right, in my opinion, on almost any foreign policy. That's my point. That's what I was going to say is that when you (laughs) examine his foreign policy, uh, uh, just instincts, it's everything. Everything is the opposite of what has worked over 40 years. And this is the crazy thing about about sort of the the rights embrace of Trump and not understanding the long term damage to their own interests. You You see this with something like the census. Uh, all, yeah. the, all the, the libertarians and conservatives don't want to do the census because of, you know, Q non conspiracies, whatever. Well, all right. you're going to do is reapportion more Democratic House seats and blue states. You, right. you have Donald Trump doing we don't like China. So you withdraw from TPP, which was a fundamental safeguard against China. It was trying to draw business away from China towards Vietnam and Taiwan, you know, with with Trump not filling the government. You're now going to have Biden fill out all of these generational bureaucratic seats with a bunch of people from the Center for American Progress. (laughs) The the long term institutional damage that Donald Trump has done for the right because people are so fed up with them hurts the right. And and it's seen as some sort of bizarre win that he's he's like he has been great in terms of foreign policy, for instance. He put the nail in the coffin, I think, in the the idea that we should be intervening in other nations and i think that it was already drawing down under obama but donald trump forced the right to take a look at their own beliefs about it to the point where like a jonah goldberg is going i was wrong about iraq i was wrong about all this you know 
So Donald Trump has well, been really positive in some ways, yeah. but to the long-term interest of people on the right, he's he's done a lot of damage, and, and it's really sort of interesting to watch people do things that are counter to their own interests. Well, I do think that a lot of what he's done is very reflective of what the public actually feels. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and that is counter to what the so-called experts would, would recommend. So TPP, uh, uh, you know, was... I certainly thought it was a great idea, and I agree with your analysis, and I had friends working on it inside the Obama administration, and it was bipartisan, um, uh, but I suspect it would not have dealt with uh, the core issues in China, which is that it simply flouts the rules, Yeah, uh, and we allow it to do that inside an international organization where we all have to follow the rules, and because we are who we are, we do. So, so the fact that Trump has broken that is probably a good thing. You, you, um, you know, you mentioned the wars. Well, Americans historically hate wars, yet we have become more and more. Uh, you know, you've heard the phrase "the, the world's policeman," and uh, we, we really, first of all, it's a massive resource drain, um, and second of all, it's it's a political. It really re- reduces our flexibility politically. Um, it's not to say we should become isolationists, but we need to choose our battles more carefully. And, and I think he's upended that. And, and again, you know, I'm on the Council on Foreign Relations, as I've said, and so everybody's wringing their hands because they're pulling out of Iraq and this and that. And, <laughs> and we don't have soldiers. We're not going to have them in Europe. And, and I, you know, you think about it. Do the soldiers really create any resistance for the Russians crossing into France or Poland or anything else anywhere, you know, a, a small group, a, a group of a thousand Americans would be enough to yeah. create a political resistance. He's, he's and, totally right on that. And why are we paying so much yeah. more in the United Nations and NATO? He's yeah, right on yeah. all that stuff. That's well, I, I frankly would love to see the United Nations become an actual forum. Um, you know, I think the promise of that is, has, you know, it's, it's always promises, never action. Um, so it would be great if, if, countries actually believed that they could talk out their, their problems. But, you know, frankly, right. most of them don't want to do it in public in any case. And um, and that's what the U.N. is. Well, well y- yeah. So there's so he's he's been good and bad on, on a lot of this stuff. But yeah, he, he, that's you right. Know, things like beating up on our allies, for instance, as as he's weakened a lot of different allyships and strengthened yeah. the hand of the Chinese and Russians, you look at a, a potential where a president is incapacitated or we have a, a crisis of our elections like that's game on for for iran for north korea for china for yeah. russia that's not necessarily good for america's interest so it's it's good and it's bad but donald trump has some characteristics that i think are great and it's his lack of he just doesn't care right he just doesn't frankly uh, but he, I do he, think it's an expression of popular will, though. Y- yes, he does. He and, identifies and that issues is, that people and that's care about. And that's where the – but that's where the conflict comes uh, when you read you know, the, the New York Times or the Wall Street – less so the Wall Street Journal, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, or any of the major newspapers. Um, they're representative of a, uh, a societal point of view that – um, his supporters are challenging and, and it's not necess- they're not necessarily wrong for challenging. I mean, the question you really have is um, what do you, what do you put in its place? Ultimately, he's and, got an incredible threshold for pain that most politicians wouldn't, and he wouldn't have been able to break a lot of those foreign policy problems if he didn't have that instinct. 
You right. know, and that's, right. that that's I right. think has been, you know, you're never going to get a Ted Cruz or, or really any other politician that could have done that. Now it's, it's been done, <laughs> you know, do we need it to continue, um, before he <laughs> well, changes his right. mind and, you know, yes, we, we need to, we need no, we don't need a bull anymore. We need somebody who's the repair person. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. we should talk about the debate. I mean, I, uh, yeah. I won't use the phrase who won, but I think Trump lost it and Biden didn't win it. Um, you know, what were your impressions? Well, uh, what was, uh, what was it? One of the commentators, the woman said it was a shit show right on the, <laughs> on the air. Bad, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't see all of it, frankly. I, I, I uh, saw the last uh, 25 minutes and I uh, thought to myself, thank God it's ending. And I'm, I'm not sorry. I missed the first part. And of course the reporting um, is, I think largely people believe Trump lost it, but there are a few people who think he did exactly what he needed to do against Biden, which was to show that he's the man in charge. You know, he's the he's the alpha male in this group. And that's what appeals to a lot of his supporters. So, yeah, he got um, which is totally undermined by now having covid. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> you know, he wanted to rattle Biden, get his Irish up and he got it. And you noticed if you watch the debate after he gets Biden to say, shut the hell up, man, he kind of stops with a lot of the interruptions. But he, you know, Trump early on in the debate looked in command of the facts. And I even remember thinking, wow, uh, this is the most articulate and fact-filled version of Donald Trump I've ever seen. And I was impressed. And then he started the bad behavior and it totally turned me off. And there were times where that, that constant talking Biden didn't look in command of the facts. He did look confused at certain points. He did like, he didn't do well. He did look tired. And if Donald Trump had shut up and gotten out of his own way, that, that would have come through, but he had to bully and piss Chris Wallace off. And I mean, they broke poor Chris. He started yeah. like at one point he starts screaming. So I, I look at it and I go, you know, again, just like with COVID and Coney Barrett and what we said earlier, he always, he, he just can't help himself and get out of well, his own way. Uh, you know, I did, I did finally, I read, I read a fair amount of the, the quotes from the early part of the debate, which I missed. Uh, that I missed watching visually. And um, uh, I actually had a similar reaction to what you just said, which is that I was surprised at how articulate some of these things were. Yeah. Now he also had one passage there and I, I can't, I can't quote it exactly, but we've talked about this before, which is that uh, he, he said, you know, uh, my, my election has never been accepted by the left. Um, yeah. First Hillary, then everybody else. And, all of these things, um, uh, he said, you know, the day after the election, they already were trying to impeach me before I was sworn in. <laughs> yeah. And and this, all this stuff has, um, I think it is true that, um, that, and this is, again, this is the swamp, the, the, uh, in, the intelligentsia, the, um, the uh, uh, establishment, whatever you want to call it. And um, immediately, shocked, surprised and reacting. And, you know, the Republicans did some of that to Obama, but it was, it was more, it, it wasn't quite as overt most of the time. It was just, we want to unelect him, you know, come the next election and, and, you know, Republicans lost on that. But um, so I, I think Trump feels and felt that he has been under attack since before he even moved into the white house. And that will certainly color 
your reactions to everything. Um, but uh, but I, I, like you, I thought a number of the answers early on were pretty articulate. Uh, I, I don't think the parts I saw made uh, Biden look so, um, you know, weak. Although, you know, what I was seeing li- live later were all the excerpts that the the left of center media, right. as opposed to the, the right media of center media, pulled, wanted me right. to see. Right. And I, you know, I, I can't stand watching Fox. I probably should be going back to it right now just to see um, what, how they report the same thing. But, uh, oh, know. yeah. The, the, the reality is Biden had some good moments. He had, you know, the, I thought when he lured, he basically, there were reports out that Trump wanted to attack Bo's military service. And right. Biden went on the offensive and talked about that to lure him into talking about it. And Trump took the bait and talked about Hunter instead, but it just made right. him look really insensitive. And then there were, you know, for all the talk about Wallace set Donald Trump up, like there were plenty of times where on the white supremacy question, you know, Wallace moved on and didn't let the president hang himself. And if he had Wallace really wanted to screw him, he could have just shut up. You know, he, he Wallace really who was in an unfortunate position and is taking way more criticism than he deserves. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and agree. just sounded downright defeated the next. Well, day so the, the next one, uh, it's going to be interesting. You know, there's all this hand wringing about, well, can they be in two separate rooms? Well, you people, <laughs> what people don't remember, not many of us alive, but the Nixon Kennedy debates, one of those was from two separate studios. Right. Yeah, you're so, right. So um, it would not, it would certainly not be the first time. And it would be interesting. Um, it would be interesting TV. And it would certainly be easier to control. Yeah, I guess you'd have to have a split screen and um, be easier to shut somebody up. But I think, I, if I you think are, uh, turning off mics is going to be a very dangerous kind I, that's of That's a terrible idea people to do terrible idea I mean, we, you know we'd, we'd love it but i think it's a bad idea all it will just oh well, you know this this c-span guy who's doing it i don't know how he got this but he yeah you know he's he's pictures with biden t- sharing anti-trump you know david brooks articles so the the reality is you don't want that mic being muted because then it just opens you up to bias or whatever organization is putting on the debates and so it's it's terribly fraught with danger and then you know, it's I think people should see if this is ugly, this is because this is what you've chosen <laughs> as an yeah. American voting population. Yeah. Look at your ugliness. Yeah. See what you've see what you've produced. But if I were on either one of these teams, I'm saying no more debates. I'm using the covid thing to, to get out of the debate if I'm Trump, because there will just be another white supremacy moment, which was horrifying and ugly. And then yeah. there will be, you know, Biden. Or, or Trump will figure it out and shut up and let Biden look weak and frail. And if I'm on either one of these teams, I'm just saying, let's move on. People, it didn't, 95% of people who watched this debate said it didn't make up their mind. Like it, these aren't effective. They don't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I, uh, uh, I'm just, yes, I agree with you completely. I was thinking about, by the way, one of the, I, I don't know if you've been, uh, if you read political books, but um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a new book out on Jim Baker. He's yeah. sort of like the ultimate manipulator of the swamp <laughs> um, <laughs> by, uh, by, um, uh, and I can't remember. It's uh, by Peter Baker and Susan Glaser and Glaser and neither one of them is, is uh, related. He's not related to Jim Baker, uh, but he's a, uh, you know, he's a, a journalist and she is two two different organizations. And I guess she's at the New Yorker and, and uh, 
he's at the New York Times, but it's about how a guy can come into what's essentially the swamp um, in a sort of a lesser position and learn to manage it and control it. And it was, you know, his personality is like that. And, and he's that kind of person, but he also believed that the purpose of politics was to actually do something. So he was willing to compromise and move things along bit by bit by bit. And there's some people who I think, uh, I can't remember if it was Susan Rice or somebody was highly critical of him saying, well, he should have done something about this and this rather than looking at all the things that he did accomplish in that period of time. But right. that would be worth people reading. It's called, uh, it's called, uh, what is the name of it? It is the man who ran Washington. Yeah. He was, uh, James Baker. What titles did he hold? He was basically like, well, he was Reagan chief needed of staff. Him. Yeah. Chief of staff to Reagan. And he basically Reagan was like, I need somebody to help. He was Reagan was an outsider and didn't know Washington. And Baker was the guy who helped get the insiders. Excuse well, me. What else? He had to, well, and he, he was, he had to create a deal with ba- with Reagan's guys, none of whom had any experience running anything. So uh, Baker had run, um, he'd been a, a minor official at Department of Commerce um, uh, before uh, Reagan. And then he was uh, George H.W. Bush's campaign manager. And, um, and then uh, later became, he did a, it was a joint chiefs of staff. Uh, uh, and then um, it became, I can't remember, I guess he was Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, you know, he was Secretary of State under, uh, under, uh, under George H.W. Bush when he became president and uh, just a, kind of a good all around uh, guy. I mean, watching him run meetings, you know, there might be 25 people in the room and he'd, he'd say, okay, I only want 10 <laughs> and he'd kick everybody else out. Really? And yeah. He, he, Cause he wanted that. He didn't want to have to, uh, he, and he's very good at listening, but also very good at commanding. So, hmm. but, but the whole point, it was the art of power and it was the art of recognizing um, the various uh, rivers and, and, uh, sw- and parts of the swamp. And he just knew how to do it. Really learned it. Yeah, I assume you worked with him in '79. Did you? Did you know? Oh yeah, him? yeah, yeah. And in fact, I mentioned in his book. Really, in the Ford campaign. Yeah, the in the Ford campaign, he was he was a campaign manager as, there, and um, and I was head of what was called the the answer desk, which was um, the equivalent of an issue operation. I think I've talked about it before. You, if you're in the campaign and for an incumbent president, you really don't make. <clears throat> policy. What you do is you you make politics. You know, you take right. whatever they whatever their positions are. You try to meld them into some coherent political message. So later, when I was in a similar position with George H. W. Bush when he ran against Reagan, um, I actually was writing policy papers and pulling you know the experts together on that. But uh, yeah, so Jim was the head of the Ford campaign. Did a masterful job. Was a master manipulator and. And deal maker, you know, getting those last votes in the convention uh, was really tough, and we all breathed a sigh of relief uh, that he was in charge. Hmm. Well, yeah. we've come to the end, and we cannot leave without talking about food. So, uh, I don't <laughs> yeah, know food. if you've been to DC, but what 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 is happening yeah, in your I, world? Well, I well, food. I you know, I was in DC last week. Um, you know, one of the nice things I've talked about down here on the island in on the Chesapeake Bay is fresh crabs and fish and all that. So we did, we pulled in the crab pots uh, yesterday. It was the end of the, of the crab season. Lots of uh, uh, 
big male crabs, but also lots of females, which is a good sign for next year. And you throw the females back, of course. And then we've started to catch. Uh, uh, what's how, how, how can drum. you tell the difference? Lipstick or what? Well, yeah, lipstick. Well, actually, that's not so awful. You know, the females have bright red claws at this time of year. Okay. And and uh, there's a, I hate to tell you, their their parts, their organs <laughs> are, so that the males look sort of like the Washington Monument and the females looks like the Capitol Dome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's all I'll say. You'll then, you never uh, know what but, you're going to learn on this show. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, uh, you know, we've been catching puppy drum. Finally, fishing's been terrible, but, uh, but we were in DC last week. It was the first time my wife had been back since the first of March. And, uh, and you know, the, in our neighborhood, uh, one restaurant, Chloe, which I've talked about before is one of our favorites is doing very well. It was as full as they can be at half capacity and, and others just were not. And it was sad. Um, we, uh, so, you know, RISC, which is one we invested in uh, and down in the West End, which is very good. But I think they were, they were the, we, uh, we were there with two of our friends and that was about it. And then, uh, uh, so the restaurant scene has is not come back and the streets are, are pretty deserted downtown. Um, you know, the hotels are closed. The, DC is a tourist town. Its budget is off by 300 plus million dollars this wow. year. And that's largely because they've lost um, all the revenue from, um, from, um, from uh, restaurants and hotels and tourism. So, but you know, a couple of restaurants have opened uh, in this, uh, including one new pizza place that's supposed to be terrific Chicago style pizza. So maybe on my next trip, uh, I will do that. And then, yeah, come the middle of October, we are traveling. We're taking a slow drive to Dallas to visit our daughter and granddaughter and husband. And we're going to hit uh, Asheville for a couple of days and Memphis and maybe Tulsa, although I point out that that's a hot spot. And uh, then down to Bentonville and then to Dallas by car and then probably to Austin for a couple of days uh, and then the wine country of Texas. So Hopefully I'll have something to report right before the election about Texas wine and uh, <laughs> some fun. of which is okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't go beyond okay. <laughs> so well, that's, that's, that's the food scene. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. It's always great to talk to you. And I'm sure between now and, and two weeks from now, 1800 different things will have happened <laughs> absolutely <laughs> the next october surprise it's great to chat all right thanks rob we'll talk to you soon thank you to everybody for listening